9. Okay? So what we'll do is we'll look at the last two verses of Psalm 9, and then I'm going to read through Psalm 10 fairly quickly. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And then we'll finish off in Psalm 11. So let's turn to Psalm 9 first. Now, Psalm 9 opens up with David praising God. And he says, I'll praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell. And he keeps saying, I will be glad. I will sing. That's all future tense. He anticipates the time when he's going to be able to praise God. Because God is going to deliver David. David's in a very difficult situation. But he says, I anticipate your deliverance, and therefore I anticipate praising you. Now he bases this on the fact that God in the past has delivered him, and if he's done it in the past, he'll do it again. Uh, so he plans on speaking of God's marvelous works. Now, one thing that David says is that God has never forgets his people. Sometimes it seems like God forgets us. We forget God a lot. Uh, but God never forgets us. He always has his eye on us. Even when we're going through difficult times, and he does that for a reason. He doesn't intervene immediately for, for various reasons. We'll be talking about that today. But evil people, people who oppress others, they forget God all the time. God is never in their conscience. Now, God doesn't forget them, and He has His eye on them, too. He has His eye on righteous people, and He has His eye on evil people. Uh, but David says in Psalm 9, there's going to come a day when God's going to intervene on behalf of His people, and they're going to be delivered, and the evil people are going to be destroyed, and at that point, God's just going to forget them. He won't even think twice about those evil people. Once He destroys them, and once He judges them, that's it. There's no second chance. That's why people need to repent when they have an opportunity to repent. Okay? So, <clears throat> Psalm 9 ended in verses 19 and 20 with these words. It's a prayer from David. He says, Arise, O Lord, do not let men prevail. That's evil men prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. And evidently what was happening is that there was, there were nations that were attacking Jerusalem and it looked like Jerusalem was going to fall. And uh, David says, hey, what are you waiting for? Arise, O Lord. Uh, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, uh, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Many nations, by the way, think they're invincible. That's the danger of becoming the most powerful nation in the world. At that point, you start thinking you're invincible. And uh, remember when uh, the Soviet Union fell? And then we said there's only one great power, and it was America. And we could just basically dictate any policy that we wanted, and the people didn't like, you're with us or you're against us. You know, that was one of those types of attitudes. And uh, that's very dangerous. And God will judge nations. And, you know, America, Great Britain, you know, Russia, it doesn't matter the nation. No nation is exempt from any of this. So here are these nations that are poised to invade uh, the Holy Land, and David says, Lord, you need to help. Now, David's been a very faithful person. It's not that he hasn't sinned, but he's always trusted the Lord. So he says, Arise, O Lord. Now, Psalm 10 is not a new psalm, even though in our English Bibles it is. Okay? Originally, in the Hebrew Bible, Psalm 9 and 10 
were one sum. And somewhere along the line, I'm not sure what year it was, but somebody said, hey, let's, de let's divide these because there's a lot of verses. But Psalm 10 doesn't have a superscription there, and it's really part of Psalm 9. It just continues Psalm 9. So what I'm going to do, a lot of it's some repeats, so what I'm going to do is just quickly read through it and make a few comments. And then we'll get into Psalm 11, okay? But notice how Psalm 10 opens. It's very interesting. It opens with two questions. Look what David says. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Now remember, back in 19, verse 19, he said, Arise, O Lord. Arise, O Lord. <clears throat> but, and so if he says, Arise, O Lord, that means the Lord is not, what? He's not standing. He's sitting. So he said, Hey, you need to get up. Remember when we talked about that last week? Don't make me get up. Right? So look what he said. Well, evidently God has now stood up. Because look what David said. Why do you stand afar? He's gotten up. At least he's standing. Look at it. Why do you stand? But look, why do you stand afar, O Lord? Question two. Why do you hide in times of trouble? So now David pictures God, at least in his mind. He can't see God. God's a spirit. But in his mind, he sees God now standing. But guess what? God's standing far away from the situation. And David even says, why are you hiding? Look like God's behind a curtain looking at what, what's happening in Israel. And he's, and he's not doing anything. So David's asking these questions, why? So David wants him to do something. Why are you standing there? You've heard people say, why are you standing there? Do something. Well, when do you say that? You do that in a crisis, don't you? Why are you standing Do something. Yeah. My hand's bleeding. Do something. But when you're in a crisis, that's the kind of question you ask people, and this is what David asked God. Now, in the meantime, while God's standing back and uh, hiding, as David pictures him, uh, look what's happening here on earth. Now, verses 2 through 11. The wicked, in his pride, he's not standing back. Look what he's doing. He's persecuting the poor. David says, let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. So, because God's standing back, God's not intervening, guess what the oppressors do? They oppress on. They persecute more. They think they can get away with it. So David says, hey, let God, let them be caught in their own plots. And we talked a little bit about getting caught in your own trap. And these wicked people, notice he calls them wicked. It's very interesting. Notice the objects of their persecution. Poor people. They're treating these poor people like trash. This is a status type thing in, in many situations. Uh, and they're taking advantage of poor people. One of the definitions, I believe, of a wicked person is a person that takes advantage of the poor. That's an evil person. Because the poor can't take care of themselves. We should be doing something. What should we be doing? At least help it. But guess what? Here's a person that can't take take care of themselves, and so knowing that they can't take care of themselves, guess what we did? Take advantage of them. That's a evil person. We persecute them. Now look at verse 3. For the wicked boast in his heart. Now here's why they persecute. Because he boasts in his heart, in his heart's desire. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. Look what he does. He blesses the greedy. 
Oh, he persecutes the poor, but what does he do? Blesses the greedy. And in doing so, look what he does. He renounces the Lord. So when you persecute poor people, guess what you're doing in essence? You're renouncing the Lord. I hate to tell you this, but God is for the poor. He doesn't want them to be poor. You know, there are a lot of poor people for they're poor because they don't work. But that's not the point. The point is, as believers, we should be reaching out to the poor and trying to help them uh, get a better circumstance. That's what God wants. And when you don't do that, and you only bless the greedy, then you, in essence, are renouncing the Lord. Look what it, verse 4 says. The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. In the midst of doing all these persecuting of the poor, uh, he doesn't think, well, maybe God's looking. Now, we know God's looking, uh, but God is afar off, and he thinks so. He doesn't think about that one day he's going to have to stand before God. He doesn't seek God. Look, he's not even conscious of God at the end of verse 4. God is in none of his thoughts. Look at verse 5. His ways are prosperous. That's the wicked person. Now the pastor talked about why is it that wicked people prosper? We don't know exactly why they do, but here it is. His ways are prospering. Your judgments are far above, out of his sight. He doesn't even think about God. As for all of his enemies, he sneers at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. I'm not like that poor person. Look, I can get away with this. I'm never going to have to face the consequences. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. And so here we have in verses 5 through 7, he keeps getting richer. He keeps oppressing the poor. Uh, he feels that he's a self-made man. I'll never fall into adversity. Uh, he doesn't think about God. He thinks only of himself that he's number one. Look at verse 8. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. This is very interesting. In the secret places, he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. And so he crouches, he lies low, that the helpless may fall by his strength. Now, what we have here in verses 8 through 10 is a picture of a hunter. A hunter who is crouching. Now, if you've ever gone hunting, you crouch and you hide so the animal cannot see you. It doesn't matter whether you're, you're you know, shooting you know, fowl or whether you're going for bear or deer. You are crouching. You are in a secret place. You're hiding. Now, who else is hiding, by the way? 
I mean, well, this is the enemy. He's hiding. Okay? But David said somebody else is hiding. God is hiding. Ooh. God's hiding. Uh, I think God is crouching. I think God is looking at the evil people and what they're doing. Now, here are the evil people. They're in that secret place. And they're crouching. They're going to ready to pounce on somebody. Gotcha! Take advantage of somebody. Who are they taking advantage of, by the way? When you look in verse 8. Look. Innocent, uh, single places, he murders the innocent. Look at those words. Verse 8. Innocent. Look at the end of verse 8. Helpless. Look at the middle of verse 9. Poor. Again in verse 9. Poor. You see that? Verse 10. Helpless. Who are these enemies lying in wait for? Who are they trying to take advantage of? Who are they trying to kill? The, this, they are the poor. This is why we have to be very careful how we treat the poor, how we treat the innocent, the people who cannot defend themselves. This is why when you have big companies take advantage of poor, it's a very dangerous thing. And when a nation allows that to happen in its midst, that nation is on a decline. Okay? Uh, what has brought pretty much the economics of this country down? It's been greed, hasn't it? Who have, who have the companies taken advantage of? The poor. <laughs> See, that's just the way it is. Now, this is reality. Okay? This is why if you're in a company that's taking advantage of the poor, okay, you need to be really thinking, do I need to be in this company? Or you need to stand up for righteousness and stand up against the policies of that company. You have to, it's, it's an amazing thing how many times the poor and the innocent and the helpless uh, are mentioned in these passages, and we'll see. So here we have uh, these evil people, maybe nations even, trying to take advantage of a weak nation, a poor nation, or it could be individuals that are weak, trying to take advantage of the poor, pounce upon them, even causing their death. Uh, because maybe they end up starving to death. Maybe they end up in the elements. Maybe they're up in Minnesota in the wintertime, and they're poor. And someone takes advantage of them. Who knows what the situation is? You can figure that out. But then you have God in hiding, and guess what he's doing? He's watching the evil people. And guess what he's going to do? He's going to pounce on them. And when he pounces, it'll be too late. See? So, David says, in verse 1, why do you stand afar off, Lord? And it's true that God's standing afar off, but God's not standing aloof. And there's a difference. It's not that he's standing afar off and he's not interested. He's standing afar off and he's in a secret place. But let me tell you, he's ready to pounce. Okay? So that's what you need to see. Now look at verse 11. He has said in his heart, Ah, God's forgotten. He hides his face. He'll never see... This, I'll get away with it. I'll do whatever I want to do. Now, God sees it all, doesn't he? What is it in your life that, you've, that you're doing and you're thinking, well, God's forgotten. Ah, God won't see it. God's far off. Ah, God won't do anything. You're doing something right now and you think you can get away with it. You know what it is. And God knows what it is. And he hasn't hidden his face. And he will see it. So David says, Arise, O Lord, O Lord. Now look what he adds when he says this. Lift up your 
hand. In other words, Lord, take action. Now when he says lift your hand, this is sort of a military uh, phrase. It's, uh, it deals with sort of a, a violent action. Uh, you've heard fathers say to their kids, don't you raise your hand to your mother. Anybody ever hear something like that? What does that mean, don't raise your hand to your mother? Don't you dare think of, don't do it like this. Don't do anything that you're going to regret because if you raise your hand to your mother, guess what's going to happen? Yeah, your father is going to come in on the situation. So what you have here is that David is asking God to raise his hand. So David is asking God to intervene with some sort of force and stop all this stuff that's going on. Raise your hand, God. Don't forget the humble. Now notice, the innocent, the helpless, the poor, the helpless, the forgotten are called now the humble. Don't forget the humble. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. Uh, that's why he forgets God, because he does not want to face judgment, and he doesn't think he's going to face judgment. He thinks he can get away with it. But you have seen. Look at that. Look at that. Look at the end of verse 13. You will not require an account, David says. That's what the wicked person says. Verse 14. But you have seen. Hey, the wicked person's wrong. But you have seen. For you observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. The helpless, there he is again, commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Now look what David says. Break the arm. That's what he says to God. Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. So here's what David wants God to do. He says, first of all, he says, you, you were, you've seen what's going on. Now you help these fatherless. See, that's, a, that's an innocent person. That's a helpless person, a, an orphan. So that's why James says, you know what pure religion is? Pure religion is helping widows and That's what pure religion is. Now, I really think that what we should do in, in the president's class, and I think that <clears throat> share this with one person or another, is that we should, and this is just something that came to my mind right now, I wasn't planning on saying this, but I think I want to share this with the class right now, is I think that we should make sure every widow in this class is called every week. There should never be a widow that's not called upon by somebody in this class. Because we need to make sure that we take care of the fatherless and the widows and people who need help. You just can't do the things you used to do. And they need to be defended. There are people out there that want to take advantage of them right now. Whether it's their Wash machine breaks down, or they need something in the air. There's somebody out there that wants to pounce on them and take their last time. Do you know that? Do you know some of those people are religious? Do you know some of those people are evangelists and preachers that want your last dime if you're a widow? They're evil people. One day, and they think they think they can get away with it. They're calling themselves people of God, and they think they can get away with it. They're not going to get away with it. David says, "Break their arms." 
They want God to be the Godfather. <laughs> this, is, this is David's mafia treatment. He wants God to break the arm. Hey, God, what do you want, David? Break the arm. Now, not literally. <laughs> this is a metaphor. Break the arm. Uh, just like I said, well, we'll break the back of the enemy. Well, we're not really breaking their back. It's a metaphor. But to break the arm means, well, in the mafia, when you break somebody's arm, and so they won't be able to use that arm to cheat at the cards anymore or something like that, right? Break his knuckles, you know. Uh, it means to render them incapable of doing what they were doing before that was evil. So David is saying, God, you need to intervene. And you need to uh, put an end to this. Seek them out, he says, in end of verse 15, until you find them. Get, get rid of all of them. So there's none of these people left. So that's what David is asking God to do. Now look at verse 16. Here's his declaration. The Lord is king forever and ever. Oh, look at that. That's a tremendous statement. The Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, is king forever and ever. Now, David's God's king on earth. David's God's human representative on earth. But he knows that God is king forever and ever. Will David die? Yes. But will God? No. God's king forever and ever. He has his representatives on earth for every generation. But God is king forever and ever. Okay. He's in charge. The nations have perished out of his sight. That means he judges them and he forgets them and they're no more. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. Here's those innocent, humble people. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear. They're crying out to you for help. You will cause your ear to hear. To do justice to the who? Fatherless and the oppressed. In other words, what he says is, Lord, you will vindicate these people. In the end, they've been taken advantage of. Uh, they've been uh, brought down. But in the end, you will vindicate them. You will vindicate the fatherless and the oppressed. And look at this purpose statement. Why will he vindicate them in the end? Here it is. That the man of the earth. That's people who don't have God in their conscience. People who are humanists. People are only thinking on the horizontal level. Never think of God. Here's why God's going to vindicate the poor and the oppressed and the fatherless. That the man on earth, the person doesn't think about God, may oppress no more. So, in the end, justice will prevail. David knows that, and that is how he ends this Psalm 9:10 combo. Uh, now, he sees God coming in healthy. Uh, God, however, is not like Superman. Okay? Clark Kent, I don't know how he knew it, but he always knew that there was trouble somewhere. You know, he just knew it. And he, well, he'd get on his uniform and he'd fly in. And, and God doesn't, doesn't do it that way. He wants you to cry out. I don't know why. He wants to see you cry out in faith and say, Lord, I'm in a difficult situation. But I'm trusting you. He wants that heart cry of faith to come up to him. And when it does, then God takes notice, he listens, and he uh, comes in and he saves the situation. Now I want you to notice something. 
that Psalm 9 and 10 is about society. It's about political realities. It's about how we live daily lives. It's not about going to heaven here. God is intervening in politics. He's intervening in nations. He's intervening in financial crisis. He's intervening in the lives of the fatherless and the orphans and the oppressed. In the end, the kingdom of God is going to be set up and Jesus Christ is going to be ruling this earth and it's going to be a political kingdom. And it'll be run right. And there'll be no oppression again. And so we need to make sure that we don't read these verses and we spiritualize them. That's a mistake that most Christians make. We spiritualize verses. And uh, we need to see these verses for what they are. Hard, earthly reality. Okay, now let's look at verse uh, chapter 11. Now, chapter 11, the superscription can't, doesn't help us at all. It just says to the chief musician, uh, a psalm of David. So we don't know what it's about based on that uh, title. However, when you read the content, you may have a clue or two. Some of the commentaries say that Psalm 11 is about the time that David served King Saul. Remember, Saul preceded David. And Saul was jealous of David, and he wanted to kill David. And they said, that's what this is describing. I'm not convinced of that. Uh, what it shows me as I read the psalm, is simply David's in trouble. David's always in trouble, you know? Have you seen the psalm yet that he's not in trouble? This guy's in trouble. I've never seen anybody in trouble so much in my life. Maybe kings and kings and presidents are in trouble all the time. I don't know. That's probably, probably the case. Uh, but we're all in trouble. Either we've been in trouble, we're in trouble now, or we'll be in trouble. So uh, that's why these psalms are so universal. Okay? Now, David gives his principle of life right here in verse 1. And I think you'll really like this little psalm. It's only seven verses. Here's David's principle of life. In the Lord, I put my trust. You want to say, what does David, what does David hang his, what's David's life philosophy? Here it is. In the Lord, I put my trust. Now, after he makes that statement, and that should be our, every one of us, that should be our life principle. In the Lord, I put my trust. Okay. It's followed up with a question. This statement leads to a question. Here it is. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to the mountain? Now think about that. In light of David's principle, here's what David says. Here's my life principle. In the Lord, I put my trust. In light of that, how can you tell me to what? Flee to the mountain like a bird. See? Flee to the mountain like a bird. Or to put it in uh, modern terms, get out of town. You know. <laughs> now, notice the instruction is flee. You see that? That's literal. Flee. We all know what that means. As a bird to the mountain, that's a simile. Flee to the... Flee. Well, how should I? Hey, man, you need to flee like a bird goes up to a mountain. Well, when does a bird go up to a mountain? He goes up to a mountain when he wants to be safe. He moves up higher. So if you're hunting birds, uh, you get them when they're low, don't you, with your shotgun? And if they want to get out of your range, they go up higher. And so here, David said, well, I put my trust in the Lord. And the people were telling David, hey, you need to flee. You need to... Go to the mountain like a like a bird. You want to be safe. Osama bin Laden, where did he go? 
He went to a mountain like a bird. We were after him and he wanted to be safe. What does he do? He goes to the mountain like a bird. <laughs> He's going to get out of our range. He's not stupid. He knows where every hole in those mountains are. So this is what they're telling David. Pull an Osama bin Laden. You know, get out of here. Get out of town. Hey, your enemies are after you. you know, that's what they're saying. Uh, and David is saying, well, why should I run when my life principle is I put my faith in the Lord? You get it? And uh, they say, well, here's the reason. Uh, because look, the wicked are bending their bows. <laughs> That's why you need to get out of town. They make ready the arrow on their string. Uh, you need to get out of town because uh, the enemy's coming in. He's, he's got all these weapons and all these guns are loaded. And he's got his uh, snipers and they're all got you right in the crosshairs. And boy, if you don't get out of town quick, you're going to end up dead. Uh, trouble is imminent. Now, from a logical standpoint, his friends are right. Would you agree with that? If somebody's coming, if you know that somebody's coming to your house, you've got a phone call, and somebody said, hey, you need to get out of your house. There's a gang in the neighborhood, and they've knocked off the first three houses on the block, and you're fourth. Get out of your house. What wouldn't you, what wouldn't you get out of your house? Yeah, because you know the danger is imminent. But David has a principle. <laughs> In the Lord, I put my trust. Okay? So you need to think about this. Because this is going to get, we're going to twist a little bit here. It's going to get very interesting. Uh, there's a sense in which the enemies, are, uh, his friends are saying, get out of town because the rifles are aimed at your head right now. And uh, in this situation, you need to get out of town. And this could cause David not to trust the Lord. So when people give you advice, you always need to say, is their advice causing me to get closer to the Lord and trust the Lord more? Or is their advice causing me to get further from the Lord and causing me to doubt the Lord? Okay? So when people are giving you advice like this, flee town, you need to be asking yourself this question. I'm sure David feels very pressured to get out of town because the enemy is ready to pounce. Now, let me just read that to you. Again, in the Lord I put my trust. Well, how can you say to my soul, flee as a bird? And the people answer, well, look, the wicked have bent their bows. They're ready, they've readied their arrows on the string. They've already, you know, strung up the arrow. That they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. They're ready to knock you off, okay? And then comes a question. Good question. Verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That is a very famous verse. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Very famous. A lot of people know that verse by heart. But you know the context. Now you can know the context. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now I want you to notice how it's worded in verse 3. First is the word if. If the foundations are destroyed. That's a supposition. That's a supposition. The supposition is the foundations are being destroyed. That's the supposition. The foundations are being destroyed. Okay? Based on that supposition, here's the question. 
when the foundations are being destroyed, David, what can the righteous do? Now, if I ask you what a foundation is, you'd say that's something that's fixed. That's something that doesn't move. You have foundation of your house. What happens when that foundation moves? Now, what do you do in that situation? Is that an emergency situation? Yeah, that's an emergency situation because if that foundation gets destroyed, uh, eventually, if you don't do anything about it immediately, that foundation will destroy your house. Now, let me say, the foundation of a home is the family. That's the foundation of a home, the family, husband and wife. If that marriage is dissolved, what happens to that home? If there's a divorce, is the home in existence anymore? No, it's destroyed. So if the foundations get destroyed, it has results. What happens if a nation's foundation is destroyed? Yeah, the nation goes. Okay? So, I, now when we say if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You need to ask yourself this question. Who's asking that question? Who's saying if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? I think it's David's friends. See, David has made a statement. I put my trust in the Lord. And his friends said, David, you need to flee to the mountains to safety. Because, hey, the enemy's coming in and they got their rifles cocked and uh, the arrows are strung and uh, they're aimed right for, toward your head. And if the foundations are destroyed, uh, then what do the righteous need to do? And you have one of two answers that you can give if you're David. You can say, well, I'll just stay here. I don't care if the first three houses were burglarized. I'll stay here and I'll believe that it will skip mine and go to the fifth house. Mr. Smith's house will get burglarized. I'll just trust the Lord. Or you can take your friend's advice and that would be to what? Flee. In normal circumstances, you trust the Lord. And extraordinary circumstances, you need to take some action. And I think that's what his friends are saying here. Uh, David, you're right. We can trust the Lord, but guess what? In this circumstance, you need to get out of town because the foundation of our nation is being destroyed. There is a full-scale rebellion against our country. And uh, you need to get out of town for a while and you need to regroup because things are falling apart. If the evil people are taking over, then uh, we're no longer living under the rule of law. And in that situation, you need to do something drastic. You need to get out of town. You need to escape. Now, does that sound strange? Would you say that his friends are right, or would you say David's right? See, now this is the question. This is what's going to make this psalm nearly impossible to determine the answer, as far as that question is concerned. And here's why. Okay? Here's what. I want you to look at Luke 21. Okay? <laughs> now, 
in Luke chapter 21, we have what's known as the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' end time scenario, his narrative of what's going to happen in the last days. And if you look down at verse 20, Luke 21 and verse 20, it says, Jesus says, it's in red, you'll notice that. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by the armies, you need to know that desolation is near. They got their guns aimed at you. They're already caught. I mean, the invasion is coming. Look, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by the armies, know that the desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea do what? Flee to the mountains. Let those who are in their midst depart. Let those who are in the country uh, enter her. For these are the days of vengeance uh, in which all things are written that must be fulfilled. So Jesus gives advice here to these faithful. These are the faithful people that he's talking to. In the end times, when you see all these things coming and it looks like it's it looks like the foundations are destroyed. Uh, the invasion of Jerusalem is going to take place. Guess what you need to do? He says what? Flee to the mountain. Now, does that mean they stop trusting the Lord? No. Does trust and flee, are they exclusive? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. You can trust the Lord, believe that he's given you some advice, warned you in advance, and he's telling you to what? Flee. See? So, uh, or are his friends wrong and he shouldn't listen to his friends? So that's the questions you have to ask. Okay? But for our purposes, let's take Jesus' answer and let's say that, hey, in certain circumstances, we need to flee. So if the first three houses have been burglarized and they're going out the back door and they're coming into your backyard, you might want to go out the front door. That makes sense. And trust the Lord. Thank Him that you were warned. But someone saw that they were coming to your house next. And say, thank you, Lord. You know, but flee. See? Now, we have David's statement of faith. Now go back and look at how this thing ends. It's very interesting. In verse 4. We're in chapter 11. Psalm 11, verse 4. David says this. The Lord is in his only temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. So he's saying that the Lord is on high, and guess what? Because he's up there, he sees it. He sees the situation. See? So that's what he's saying. The Lord is in his heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the Son of Man. He is putting, in these kinds of situations, uh, he could have intervened immediately, just like that if he wanted to. But... David realizes that the Lord is in, his, in heaven, he's looking down, and he's testing us. He's evaluating the situation. He's judging the situation. He's discerning the situation. Okay? He is uh, trying us. Okay? He tries or tests the son of men. Look at verse 5. The Lord tests who? The righteous. Hey, in those situations, he's putting us through a test. Putting us through a test. But, what about the wicked? But the wicked and the ones who love violence, his soul hates. God hates those people that are doing that. Okay? But us, when we're going through it, guess what he's doing? He's testing the believer. Why is he testing the believer? Not to know our hearts. He already knows our hearts. Okay? So that we'll know our hearts. 
so our hearts will be revealed to us. See? Uh, it's for our benefit, so we'll know whether we're real believers or not. But the evil, the evil people, uh, those people, his soul hates. Because of all the things they've done. They've destroyed the foundations of society. See? Those people he hates. Now look at the result. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. Uh, God's going to judge them. What's, how's he going to judge them? Fire and brimstone. You know any other country or nation that was judged with fire and brimstone? Oh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, remember, uh, the angels came to Lot's house and said to Lot and Abraham, and uh, get out of here and flee to the... Oh, flee to the mountains. Yeah. And by fleeing to the mountains, they were trusting that was God's advice. And then, guess what God did with the wicked? Fire and brimstone. So I believe that this passage is telling David, hey, it's okay to flee. Nothing wrong with fleeing. Fleeing and faith are not necessarily exclusive. And so what God's doing, he's showing divine pleasure upon the righteous whom he's testing, and he is pouring out divine judgment on the wicked. And this fire and brimstone, by the way, uh, it says that their arrows are aimed at you, David, and they're aimed at the righteous people. Do you think arrows are a little stronger than the fire and brimstone? Who's going to win that war right now? I think the fire and brimstone is going to win out. Okay. Now look at the reason for the judgment. Verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. It's the opposite of the wicked. Here's why he's going to do this. Notice it says their portion, this shall be the portion of their cup at the end of verse 6. Why will they get this judgment? Uh, because the Lord is righteous. Now look at this. He loves the righteous. His countenance beholds the upright. Now notice at the end of verse 5, he hates the wicked. Do you see that? But in verse 7, he loves the righteous. See, he loves righteousness. He hates wickedness. And on the righteous people, his countenance shines. The Lord bless thee. See? You know that little prayer? The Lord bless thee. Yeah. Lord keep thee. May his face shine upon thee. That means blessings. That means countenance. His countenance is upon the upright, and that means that God favors the upright. Okay. Uh, so I see that what we have here is uh, a psalm where David is making his principal life by trust in the Lord, and his friends are saying, in these circumstances, David, you need to flee. That does not necessarily mean you don't trust the Lord. Uh, so when the foundations collapse, we can, depending on the situation, Flee, put our faith in the Lord, stay there and fight. And in the scriptures we see all those uh, scenarios. In this situation, this extraordinary situation, David is told. Now let me just give you a couple lessons here, just from what we've seen in uh, Psalm 11. Number one, God delights in us. That's the one thing that you need to realize is that God loves you. He delights in you. His countenance shines upon you. You can't see that. You know, there are people who have done favors. If you have received favors at the hands of people that you don't even know. We tell our students many times, hey, there are people that paid for your tuition you have no idea. And let me tell you, 
You were favored by people who you've never met. They shine their faces upon you. You don't even know. Hey, God loves us and His countenance is... He's smiling upon us. Upon all those who are righteous. And uh, that is something that we need to realize and never allow that to, to leave our mind. Second of all, He tries us. He tests us. Doesn't mean we're not going to go through difficult times. How long will the test last? As long as it takes for us to realize, hey, in this crisis, I'm a person of faith. I didn't curse God. I didn't do like Job's wife said, curse God and die. No, in this, I didn't run from God. Instead, I, I cried out to God in the midst of this. That's what God wants you to see. He wants to reveal to you your heart. So He tries us for our benefit. How long? As long as it takes to prove that we are people of faith. One thing that hit me, and I've said this already, but it's important to just say it again. Oftentimes, when we're going through these situations, we think God's standing off. And He is, in a sense, watching. But He's not aloof. Remember I said that before? He's not aloof. He is concerned about you. And I think it's really important that we realize He's not disinterested in us. He is. And then finally, the fact is that God is supernatural. And the battle is ultimately the Lord's. Whether we're in the fight, Guess we're really fighting behind the scenes? God. Or whether we flee, guess who will protect us? And that's it. God. God is supernatural. That means that God has never lost a fight. He's never lost a battle. He always wins. So what we need to do in those situations when we're going through crisis is we need to stand back and we need to watch God manifest His miraculous intervention on our behalf. As Christians, we believe in a supernatural God, but we don't act like it. It's like the pastor said, we're like practical atheists. We claim that God's supernatural. If we claim that he's supernatural, guess what we need to do? Trusting to intervene and do things supernaturally. And then we'll know that he was the solution to the problem. It wasn't just our own child. Uh, next week, we'll pick up at uh, Psalm 12, which is another Psalm of David. And guess how it starts out? Help, Lord! <laughs> He's in trouble again. So we'll pick up there next week. Lord, we thank you for your word. Help us to uh, have a heart like David. Help us to realize when we should be fleeing, when we should be fighting, when we should, but always that we should be trusting you. Help us to learn these lessons for these psalms. Apply them to our lives. Help us to be people of faith. In Jesus' name we pray.